Well, it's my great pleasure this evening to introduce uh, Professor David Stevenson's inaugural lecture for the Stevenson Chair in International History. David's asked me not to say too much with typical modesty, so I'll just briefly list his very impressive uh, list of publications uh, in the field of First World War studies, uh, starting with French war aims against Germany, <coughs> dating back to 1982. David, in that respect, is the one colleague in the department I can embarrass by saying I read that book as an undergraduate, in fact. Um, and continuing on through the First World War and uh, international politics, armaments and the coming of war in Europe, on to cataclysm, the First World War as political tragedy, and most recently, uh, with our backs to the wall, victory and defeat in 1918. Well, I might just make David's ears burn just a little bit by recollecting a comment that one of our um, former external examiners uh, did make to me in private a few uh, years ago. I won't name the individual in question, but he kind of whispered in my ear, you know, David Stevenson is the best professional historian working in Britain today. And I probably embarrassed him with that, but I think there's an awful lot of truth in that. David's a remarkably uh, methodical, outstanding uh, scholar. He's also, uh, I can say from the point of view of the department and the school, a truly outstanding and selfless uh, colleague. Uh, so from every respect, from his scholarship, uh, for his contribution to the discipline, a very, very worthy uh, holder of this chair. Well, uh, tonight David's going to speak to us on the topic of the relevance of international history. I'm fascinated by what he's going to say because I know he's done a lot of digging in archives to look, amongst other things, at the history of the uh, Stevenson Chair. So I'd like you all to give uh, David um, a big welcome, please. Well, th thank you very much, um, Nigel. Ba basics, first of all, can everybody hear me at the back? Yes, and can everybody see the screen? And also, if I change the screen, that seems to work. Okay, so learning from the past, the relevance of international history. I need to explain what I'm going to do this evening, which is to start in Houghton Street. So this may begin by seeming rather LSE-centred, but I'm going to broaden outwards in successive circles from London in the 1920s to Europe in 1914, the Caribbean Sea in 1962, and even perhaps to where we find ourselves today. And there are reasons why I'm going to proceed in this fashion, which by the end, anyway, I hope will become clear, even if you may wonder at points in this where exactly the direction of travel is going. But this lecture began as an inquiry into the history of international history. In other words, I intended to dig into the origins of the Stevenson Chair, around which the LSE Department of International History grew up, and the LSE in turn was one of the nuclei from which the subject spread to Britain and to overseas, one of the nuclei, if not the principal one. So... If we turn, of course, as one would begin, I think, with Ralph Durandorf's history of the LSE, we find that in 1932, Charles Kingsley Webster became the first holder of the Stevenson Chair. Webster's papers, which are in the LSE archives, give some period flavour. Previously, Webster was the holder of the Woodrow Wilson Chair of International Politics at Aberystwyth and... Uh, Already in those days, people practiced headhunting, and Webster was, in effect, headhunted. He was approached 
and invited to apply for the job and, invite, and invi- interviewed by the Board of Advisors in South Kensington on the 22nd of January. Well, ten days later, Eileen Powell, who was the medievalist professor of economic history, wrote to him as beloved Charles and informed him that the selectors had ranked him, quote, unhesitatingly first. So he would come top of the selection committee, and uh, having done that, Eileen Power then lamented with him the contemporary international scene, and in particular the lack of international reaction to Japanese aggression in China at Shanghai, though already looking very closely at international developments. And both these people, Eileen Power and Charles Kingsley Webster, were strong supporters of the League of Nations and very active members of the internationalist movement. Well, the papers show that Webster was offered £1,000 a year. Um, He wanted more. The LSE director, William Beveridge, found more money, as directors sometimes do, and upped the salary by 25%, so Webster came. Beveridge also had to do something which directors wouldn't do these days. He had to mediate between the professor of, uh, between Webster and the professor of international politics, Charles Manning. And what Beveridge advised was that Manning was to deal with the subject, quote, analytically, whereas Webster was to deal with the subject historically. So already, if you like, an element of demarcation, dispute. Um, But, of course, Beveridge need not have worried, actually. Webster finally agreed to provide lectures on European diplomacy from 1814 to 1878, straying well back from straying on international relations territory. European diplomacy from 1814 to 78, and he ran a special subject on the reconstruction of Europe between 1813 and 1822, as well as chairing a seminar at the recently established Institute of Historical Research and preparing a book on the foreign policy of Lord Palmerston. Well, as you can probably guess from looking at his portrait, Webster was a man of decided opinions and vigorous in expressing them. He believed that historians should press up to open up the archives. He was a thorn in the side of the Foreign Office, where Sir Eyre Crow described him as, quote, a terror. In fact, Webster disclosed in the mid-1920s that the Foreign Office was, in the pro- was habitually um, eavesdropping, of course, on the diplomatic correspondence of foreign governments, which we all know today, but in the 1920s nobody went in public in saying that, but Webster did. He was to be a vigorous critic of the Munich settlement. He said the problem there was simply that the British government lacked guts. He returned to government service in the Second World War and helped to draft the UN Charter. So he was a man who had practical experience as well as diplomatic, as well as professional scholarly experience. And in many ways what he did was set international history at the LSE on a trajectory that it would continue to follow until the 1990s. Well, that is the departmental foundation myth. Like other myths, it has the intriguing characteristic of not being true. The reality is more curious. The Stevenson chair was not founded in 1932. It was founded seven years earlier, in 1925, as a joint foundation between the LSE and what was then the British Institute of International Affairs, now the Royal Institute of International Affairs at Chatham House. Its first holder was not Charles Kingsley Webster, but Arnold Joseph Toynbee, whose conception of the discipline radically differed. Now, a great deal of correspondence survives at Chatham House about this, the process of the origin of the chair. Much of it centres on laments about the slowness of the University of London bureaucracy. Some things don't change. But I want to organise this story around three central figures, Lionel Curtis, Sir Daniel Stevenson, 
and Toynbee himself. So we begin with Lionel George Curtis. There he is in rather dashing pose, a civil servant, Oxford academic, leader of the so-called kindergarten of imperialist intellectuals that clustered initially around Alfred Lord Milner, a lifelong crusader for imperial federation and for closer ties between Britain and the US. This was a man with an agenda. He attended the 1919 Paris Peace Conference as a member of the British delegation. Like many of his colleagues at Paris, he was appalled at how, in his view, an ignorant and chauvinistic public opinion moulded what became a catastrophically draconian peace treaty. So what became Chatham House, in parallel, by the way, the Council of Foreign Relations in New York, Chatham House and the Council of Foreign Relations emerged from a meeting of British and American delegates during the peace conference at the Hotel Majestic in Paris in May 1919, which Curtis, Toynbee and Webster all attended. You will see that the world I'm describing is one that was small and tightly internet. They all knew each other. And they agreed that what was needed was a centre for, and I quote, the scientific study of international affairs. And that term scientific is extremely important. The study of international relations needed to be based on objective, factual inquiry and off-the-record discussion between academics and practitioners. But the findings of that research also needed to be disseminated. That was also extremely important via journalists and intellectuals in order to instruct public opinion more broadly. Now, central to this project that led to Chatham House from the start um, was the idea that there should be an annual survey of international affairs. And in 1924, Curtis believed he'd found the man who could do it. This was Arnold Toynbee, a classicist, a quite outstanding linguist who had served in the Foreign Office during the First World War and recently resigned from the chair of Hellenic Studies at King's College. The broker between the two was James Hedlund Morley, the chief historical advisor to the Foreign Office, another attendant at the uh, Hotel Majestic meeting. Hedlund Morley was also the leading advisor to the Board of Education and probably the most important single influence on the British school history curriculum in the early 20th century. Anyway, Hedlund Morley brought in Toynbee to write the survey and now what was needed was money. Well, Socky Hall Street, Glasgow, you may wonder how this fits in. Um, the money was forthcoming after a meeting between Curtis and Sir Daniel Macaulay Stevenson. Um, the meeting took place at Buxton Spa in April 1925, where Stevenson was taking the waters, but Stevenson's habitual base was Glasgow. The intermediary who set up this meeting, perhaps ironically, was Sir Henry Haddo, the director of the Sheffield Steel Firm that had produced the 1916 British Infantry Steel Helmet. Well, Stevenson deserves to be better known. That's one thing that's become clear to me from doing the research for this. He was the proud product of Victorian Glasgow, hence Socky Hall Street. The second city of the empire, an economic and cultural powerhouse, still in the decade before 1914, one ship in every four launched globally came from the banks of the River Clyde. Stevenson was also a man of the world, apprenticed to a ship, to a ship broker at age 16, so his formal education didn't go beyond that, he established his own remarkably successful coal exporting company. He became then moved into politics as a radical liberal, as businessmen used to do in those days, committed to improving working class living conditions. He became first Glasgow City Treasurer and then Lord Provost. So he made his fortune by cresting the pre-1914 wave of globalisation. And it's not surprising that having done that, he remained a lifelong free trader 
and an apostle of international cooperation from early on. He modelled Glasgow's new electric tram system on the trams of Hamburg. He was criticised for trying to improve relations with the German cities who were Clydeside's rival in the Edwardian naval race. Well, he did cooperate, of course, with the war effort in 1914-18. He was a patriot, um, although he regarded, from many, in many ways, from a man of his perspective, the Great War was a disaster. And in its aftermath, he backed the League of Nations and continued his pursuit of reconciliation. This he took to the lengths where, in June 1933, he visited Berlin for private meetings with President Paul von Hindenburg and the new Chancellor, Adolf Hitler. That he could achieve this as a private citizen gives some indication of this man's standing. He reported in the Glasgow Evening News, and I quote, that even if we are not altogether at one with them, that's Hindenburg and Hitler, in their methods, they deserve to have our best wishes in the stupendous task which lies before them. A serious, though rare, lapse of judgment in Stevenson's career. Notwithstanding that lapse of judgment, he remained a man of the left. He went on to help to found the Scottish ambulance brigades that served the Republicans in the Spanish Civil War. And as you may be now gathering, he was a remarkable self-taught linguist. He had high-level contacts across continental Europe. And he also became a major philanthropist. By the time of his death in 1944, he donated almost half a million pounds, which in today's equivalent is nearly 15 million, nearly all of it going to higher education, the formal education that he himself had lacked. And he became convinced by the 1920s that a major reason for the Great War, that disaster from his perspective, was the nationalist bias of pre-1914 history teaching and school textbooks. Interestingly, he first developed that view in going to America and reading the school textbooks over there and their anti-British expression of sentiments. Well, by 1924, he was looking for opportunities to correct this. I'm going to uh, just put up now an extract from the um, revised Stevenson indenture of 1931. And if you see the bit that's highlighted in bold, this gives an indication of the underlying thinking. Anyway, in 1924, he met, again typical of the man, he met Sir Eric Drummond, the first Secretary General of the League of Nations, who suggested he should endow a chair at Geneva. Then he met Raymond Poincaré, the former French President and Prime Minister, who suggested endowing a chair at The Hague. But the man who won Stevenson over was Lionel Curtis, to the idea of a joint appointment whose holder would be 50% Director of Studies at Chatham House, writing the annual survey of international affairs, and 50% a London University professor attached to the LSE. Stevenson was enthusiastic about the survey, but what he wanted above all was, and I quote, getting international history taught impartially, as far as that is possible, and to train a younger generation of university teachers who would think in the same way. In other words, then, this was a project of detoxification, denationalizing history and the teaching of history. And once the endowment was agreed, which was at the end of 1925, the Star newspaper reported the news under the headline, quote, £20,000 to promote peace. Well, what then happened? Arnold Toynbee was the first holder of this new dual role. 50% appointment at the LSE, 50% at Chatham House, and it has to be said that his tenure was a failure. Now, part of the reason was personal. Toynbee had little commitment to teaching, and he loathed administration. He was expected to do too much. His health broke under the strain. 
Beveridge, the LSE director, reluctantly agreed to reduce Toynbee's teaching to just three lectures a year. But there was also something more fundamental. Curtis had told Stevenson that before taking the job, Toynbee, and I quote, Toynbee feels it is very important that it should be clearly understood between yourself, i.e. Stevenson, and him, i.e. Toynbee, exactly what you mean by international history. As you know, the word is capable of various interpretations. Well, Stevenson hit it off with Toynbee and therefore presumably shared his interpretation of what the discipline meant and what Toynbee understood by the discipline is given by the titles perhaps of his three lectures. You might like to compare these with Webster's, yeah? Webster on European Diplomacy, 1814 to 78, and European Reconstruction, 1813 to 1822. This is Toynbee. The Pacific as a focus of international relations. Emigration and immigration since the War of 1914. The effect of colonial warfare on the industrialization of military techniques. And he also ran a seminar series on, and I quote, cultural relations between the West and other civilizations. Of course, Toynbee's real commitment was neither to Chatham House nor to LSE, but to writing what his wife and children called the nonsense book. And the nonsense book was the multi-volume product that he published in the 1930s and 1940s as a study of history, a monumental study of the rise and decline of 26 civilizations, only two of them European. In other words, he had a totally different understanding of the scope and proper subject matter of international history from that of Webster, or from that of Harold Templey, the professor at Cambridge. And Templey, like Webster, was on the advisory board for the Stevenson chair and in 1928 wrote a sardonic memorandum, scarcely veiled attack on Toynbee. The memorandum is called, modestly, Suggestions for the Work of the Stevenson Professor. Now, according to Templey, and I'm quoting from the memorandum, international history must be strictly defined. It must be based on unrestricted access to at least two sets of foreign ministry archives, which meant that the most recently it could be studied was 1878. Studies, published on, studies based on published sources, said Templey, do not constitute international history. In other words, international history was synonymous with what used to be called diplomatic history, with political relations between states and particularly between foreign ministries, and it could not come up to the present. Well, Templey, of course, expressed himself too categorically. But I think he had a point for showing and judging how far the policy of one country can influence another. There probably is no substitute for the reconstruction and analysis of day-to-day -day bilateral relations on which the so-called London School of Diplomatic History traditionally used to concentrate. But then Toynbee had a point too. And for Toynbee, civilizations rather than states were the unit of analysis. Archives were not central. And culture, empire, demography, economics, technology, and contemporary affairs were all perfectly legitimate fields of inquiry. Well, in the short term, perhaps Toynbee won the argument. After 1945, he had enjoyed an enormous vogue and enormous sales, especially in America, leading to his appearance in 1947 on the front cover of Time magazine. Wouldn't all professional historians like to be there? <laughs> But he would experience his own version soon afterwards of a civilizational rise and fall because his work was punctured by hostile academic reviews in the 1950s and his reputation has never really recovered. But in the longer run, he inspired the Chicago historian William McNeil, who wrote Toynbee's biography and revived the study of global history after 1960. 
Well, that's the longer term. In 1932, the solution reached was to divide the role in two. What happened was that Toynbee became Stevenson Research Professor of International History. Note that he was called Stevenson Research Professor. So he was just going to write from now on. That's a Chatham House. Webster became Stevenson Professor of International History at the LSE and concentrated, therefore, on the teaching vocation. They also did research. But Webster taught the subject much as Templey had envisaged. And Webster and Templey had a pretty similar view of these things. In fact, just as Templey had proposed, Webster stopped the teaching in 1878. Until the 1950s, the two institutions cooperated in a steering committee. Well, what made this possible was that Sir Daniel Stevenson had actually modified the terms of his bequest so as to reduce its tax liability and to double the amount of funding actually available, net of the inland revenues and uh, exactions. And that was not the only testimony to his shrewdness. The point here is that contrasting traditions of approaching international history were present from the founding years of the department. And to an extent, of course, are still evident in the department of today. Their traces are very visible in the structure of our undergraduate and postgraduate syllabuses. And although since the 1990s a broader and more inclusive interpretation of the scope of the discipline has, in my view, rightly predominated, that more focused approach associated with Templey and Webster is also needed. And the relationship between the two should be complementary and symbiotic. Well, I've highlighted so far the divisions that existed among the pioneers. What matters more is what linked them together. Because it should be clear by now that what happened at the LSE with the founding of the Stevenson Chair was part of a much broader development, the rise of a new discipline of international studies. And as LSE director, William Beveridge um, very much encouraged that. There he is. And he used Rockefeller money in order to do it. An early example of directors bringing in international funding. We hope we'll see more of this from the U.S., Stevenson was emphatic that his new chair should be based at the school. But in the 1920s, the LSE not only had a chair of international law, held by Herbert Smith, but a new chair of international politics, held first by Philip Noel Baker and then by Charles Manning. At Aberystwyth, David Davis, uh, another man, actually, whose family fortune came from coal exporting, David Davis founded the Woodrow Wilson chair that Webster held before he moved to London. In 1924, the first Labour government authorised the publication of what became 11 volumes on British documents on the origins of the war, edited once again by Harold Templey with G.P. Gooch. If you read the correspondence of the period, it's full of the sense that something new and exciting was emerging, that they were present at the creation. And of course, this was part of an international movement that also embraced scholars such as Pierre Renouvin in Paris, Bernadotte Schmidt in Chicago, and Otto Hirsch and Albrecht Mendelssohn Bartholdi in the Weimar Republic in Germany. If I can quote from Charles Webster's 1933 Stevenson inaugural, in the last 13 years, the history of the relations between organized groups has been transformed. And what was crucial in all of this was that they believed that what they were doing mattered in more than just a scholarly sense. If I can quote from Donald Cameron Watt's Stevenson inaugural, Cameron, Donald Cameron Watt likened the origins of international history to, quote, disaster studies. And that was a perceptive remark. It's no accident that it emerged in the aftermath of the Great War, during which most of the founders had done government or military service. They spanned the divide between the academic world and public affairs. Yet that experience had intensified rather than diminished their sense that history was important. According to the in-house history of Chatham House, 
Its aim was to apply to international affairs the method of objective and disinterested research that had been so successful in the natural sciences. According to Curtis, I feel that the study of international affairs is of such vital importance to the whole world that I hope to devote to its organisation every minute of every hour that I can spare. According to Stevenson, he hoped that what we are doing is to serve for generations, if not for centuries. Looking back on it all in 1947, perhaps more reflectively, Webster commented, Webster commented on his belief that if scholars could better understand the international system, catastrophes like 1914 might be avoided. But, he felt, I underestimated both the pace at which history would be made and the pace at which it could be written. Well, this faith in the value of history for practitioners, of course, has a lengthy pedigree. Webster declared in 1933 that, quote, the great men of action have always used history to test and train themselves. The Cambridge professor, I think he cited the example of uh, the elder Moltke, the Arthur architect of Bismarck's Wars, who translated the correspondence from Napoleon. The Cambridge professor of imperial history, J.R. Seeley, back in the 1880s, had said that history is the school of, tra- school of statesmanship. George I, in the early 18th century, founded the Regis Chairs of Modern History at Oxford and Cambridge in order to impart, and I quote, knowledge which is highly necessary towards completely qualifying the youth committed to their care for several stations, both in church and in state. Now, the sources of this conviction, I think, go back at least to Thucydides the Athenian and to his history of the Peloponnesian War. Let's remember here that Arnold Toynbee, of course, was a Hellenist an expert on Greece, and I'm quoting from Toynbee where he writes the re- on the comments on the reasons why he wrote the study of history. He could not live through the outbreak of war in AD 1914 without realizing that the outbreak of war in 431 BC had brought the same experience to Thucydides. He was born into a time of troubles that was, by definition, a historian's paradise. And for my purposes this evening, two things that Thucydides said are particularly pertinent. And if you read the great introduction to the Peloponnesian War, Thucydides wrote, and I quote, that what he wanted to do was to provide a clear account of what happened. And, such as the human condition, will happen again at some time in the same or a similar pattern. And second, Thucydides said that the great war between Athens and Sparta escalated from a local conflict between Corinth and Corsaira. But the details of that escalation mattered less than did the real reason, true but unacknowledged, which was the growth of Athenian power and Spartan fear of it. Well, I want to stay with the theme of history as a school of statesmanship, but to switch gear slightly and move to another time of troubles, specifically to a conversation in the White House on the evening of Tuesday, 23rd of October, 1962, almost 50 years ago this evening, the day after President John F. Kennedy announced a quarantine to prevent Soviet missile shipments to Cuba, and the day before the Americans realized that Soviet vessels were stopping short of the quarantine line, almost half a century then ago from this week, and one realizes with something of a shock, perhaps, that as much time now separates us from Kennedy as separated him then from 1914 to emblematic events in the history of international politics 
And of course, the 50 years time segment, as we all know, is artificial and arbitrary. But in a lecture on the topic, and with the timing of this one, you would expect me to refer to both events. And the very fact that you would do so underlines how the ways in which we grid reference the territory of the past shapes how we think and feel about it. Well, what I want to do is to explore the connection between 1914 and 1962. So let's see where this passage leads us. Well, the passage is probably well known to many people. It comes, of course, from Robert Kennedy's memoir, 13 Days. It's rarely cited in full. It's the record of a meeting on the evening of the 23rd of October, which were present not only the Kennedy brothers, but also Ted Sorensen, the special counsel to the president, and Kenny O'Donnell, Kennedy's appointment secretary, who, as you may remember, is the character played by Kevin Costner in the film. Um, you'll see that Kennedy refers in the extract to 1939 as well as 1914, and that the emphasis is on the risk of war by miscalculation. And immediately after this conversation, according to Robert Kennedy's account, the president sent his brother to open a secret channel of communication with the Soviet ambassador, Anatoly Dobrynin. In other words, invoking the 1914 analogy led to action. Certainly, Robert Kennedy's memoir is unreliable, we know that. But we have corroborative evidence that the president often cited Barbara Tuckman's book, The Guns of August, which you see referred to here. In fact, that he insisted that his aides read it. He wanted every officer in the army to do so. And the Secretary of the Army actually sent copies of the book to every US military base in the world. The Guns of August won the Pulitzer Prize. It remained on the New York Times bestseller list for 42 consecutive weeks. And its emphasis was indeed, as Kennedy says here, on an inadvertence. And I'm quoting a characteristic extract from the Guns of August. War pressed and twisted against every frontier. Suddenly dismayed, governments struggled and twisted to fend it off. Appalled upon the brink, the chiefs of states attempted to back away. But the pull of military schedules dragged them forward. Now that's Barbara Tuckman then on 1914. And this interpretation of a war forced on reluctant governments by their own military preparations has been enormously influential. If you look, for example, at the chapter in Henry Kissinger's book on diplomacy, it offers a very similar interpretation, again, by another practitioner. And although a number of historians have disparaged Barbara Tuckman, there was a good deal more to her than meets the eye. She was presented in the press at the time as a New York housewife. Actually, she came from a distinguished banking and intellectual dynasty. Her uncle, Henry Morgan Ford Jr., was Franklin Roosevelt's Treasury Secretary, the architect of the Morgan Ford plan to pastoralize the post-war German economy. Her grandfather, Henry Morgan Ford Sr., was the American representative in Constantinople in 1914, and she remembered the arrival in 1914 in Constantinople of the German cruisers Gerben and Breslau that would pitch Turkey into the World War. And her book, The Guns of August, actually cited most of the published primary sources in English, French, and German. And although she did not cite her secondary sources, her interpretation was actually not very distant from that of leading professionals at the time. If we look back to 1950, the year of the Schumann Plan for a European coal and steel community, so a year for French-German reconciliation. In 1950, a meeting of French and German historians led by Pierre Renouvin and Gerhard Ritter pronounced, and I quote, that the documents do not permit attributing a premeditated desire for war on the part of any European people or government in 1914. And school textbooks in both countries should be revised accordingly. Charles Webster's successor, Norton Medlicott, in his 1955 Stevenson inaugural said, and I quote, 
at least 90% of the people in this country still accept the original 1914-18 war guilt thesis as applied to Germany, in spite of the universal rejection of this belief by historians. That's Medlicott in 1955. So if not a product of design, then the war must have been some kind of accident, of inadvertent. And that, of course, was the notion popularized in A.J.P. Taylor's 1963 book, The First World War and Illustrated History, the most mordantly successful of the half-centenary accounts, which by 1989 had already sold a quarter of a million copies. Well, on all of this, I want to make two points. The first is that the miscalculation thesis is no longer sustainable. The second probably fortunately, it did not in fact form the basis for Kennedy's management of the Cuban Missile Crisis. So let me take these points in turn. Now, at the same time as Tuckman and Taylor were disseminating the miscalculation thesis, President Fritz, uh, um, Professor Fritz Fischer's work on Germany was frontally assaulting it. First, with his grasp of world power, Griff nach der Weltmacht in 1961, that argued that Germany's leaders had deliberately risked a war, a European war. And then in 1969, with his War of Illusions, Krieg der Illusionen, in which he argued that the Germans had deliberately premeditated a European war since at least 1912. Now, in doing this, of course, Fischer was well aware that he was challenging a comfortable historical consensus in the German Federal Republic, in a way of which Sir Daniel Stevenson would probably have heartily approved. He was trying to force German public opinion and scholarly circles to face up to their own country's past. But what I want to underline here are less Fisher's conclusions than his methods. Because before Fisher got to work in the 1960s, the leading authorities on war origins, such as Bernadotte Schmidt and Luigi Albertini, had written about European diplomacy as a whole, as a system of great power interactions and how they operated against each other. In doing that, those historians followed Templeley's prescriptions, even though they were writing on a very recent period. Fisher, in contrast, used archives copiously, but concentrated on the foreign policy of just one country, relating diplomacy to broader forces in Germany's economy and society, and he opened the way for similar one-country studies of other powers, including the Allied powers and uh, Austria-Hungary. Um, it's only really since the 1990s that a new wave of writers, most recently Christopher Clarke, who will be speaking here next February, have gone back to treating the system as a whole, but now based on a far more intensive understanding of the states that belong to it. Now, it may be unfashionable to say this, but I think we have made progress. The cutting-edge literature on war origins today rests on a far deeper understanding than we possessed in the 1920s or even in the 1960s. As we have also progressed in our understanding of other classic international history topics, such as European imperialism, the Second World War, and the Cold War. And underlying much of that progress is precisely that international historians have used a combination of approaches to tackle these problems in the way that James Joel called for in his celebrated Stevenson inaugural of 1968 on 1914, The Unspoken Assumptions. Well, anyway, out of the debate as it approaches its centenary, as we get towards 2014, a most intriguing new consensus of opinion seems to be emerging. The debate on Germany is not exhausted, but I think that many historians would now accept the first version of Fischer's thesis. Um, German, the German leaders deliberately risked a European conflict whereas few would accept the second, in other words, the premeditation approach. My own view on this is actually somewhere between the two. 
preventive war was an option under consideration by the German leaders from probably 1911, but it was not actually decided on until July, July 1914. Well, that's where we are with the German side of the equation, but now what seems to be happening, there's been at least four major books on this, including Clark's, all of which underline how far Germany's opponents, including Britain and France, as well as Russia, were also willing to risk war, as also was Germany's principal ally, Austria-Hungary. The issue, in other words, was not that nobody wanted war, but actually everybody was willing to risk it, and if necessary, to fight rather than to give way. So why was this? What were the sources of this willingness? Well, it was not because of war fever on the streets. Another big change in recent years is that we now know far more about public opinion in France, Germany, and Britain. All have been thoroughly investigated, and in each case, what's been shown is that the jingoistic demonstrations in the capital cities were essentially an epiphenomenon. It didn't reflect the depth of public opinion. What did matter, and this is where Sir Daniel Stevenson's insight about history teaching remains pertinent, is that the pre-1914 moulding of historical consciousness, national consciousness, helped predispose the public to accept that the conflict was necessary once it had begun. What's also relevant here is that that generation too had just been celebrating centenaries and half-centenaries. The Russians at Borodino, the Germans at Leipzig. To say nothing of the American half-centenary often forgotten at Gettysburg in 1913, attended by 50,000 veterans and addressed by President Woodrow Wilson. The uh, picture is of the Volkerschlachtdenkmal, or Battle of the Leipzig, Battle of Leipzig Memorial, unveiled on the 18th of October 1913, and at the ceremony, Kaiser Wilhelm II urged the Austro-Hungarian chief of the general staff to attack Serbia. If I can quote from Wilhelm, I have done much reading about war and know what war means. But finally the situation occurs in which a great power can no longer look on, but must reach for the sword. Well, if we ask why governments played with fire, however, there are two other factors that should be highlighted. First one is the arms race. And here one is reminded of the words written by another of Sir Daniel Stevenson's close friends, the former British Foreign Secretary, Sir Edward Grey. This is Grey in his memoirs in 1925, the year when the Stevenson bequest was uh, confirmed, on the pre-war arms race. The enormous growth of armaments, this is what made war inevitable. This is the lesson that the present should be learning from the past. If I can put it, well, this is the LSE. You would expect me to show you a graph. <laughs> the point here, the arms race that mattered is not the Anglo-German naval race, which the British won, which lost impetus after 1912. What matters is the competition between the European armies. I'm grateful, by the way, to my student Marvin, well, former doctoral student, now Dr. Marvin Freed, who prepared this uh, graph. What the um, graph shows, I hope, this is expenditure on European armies, light pen, I hope, shows the traditional German predominance of the Germans in the black, yeah, um, German tra traditionally the largest military spender, being overtaken by the Russians and the French, French down there, the green, but the Germans snapping back in 1913-14 with a, two major army laws. Um, now this picture from graphs, and graphs are a very crude way, frankly, of showing anything, but what is borne out, this is, this is confirmed by the secret military briefings made by the general staffs to both governments in both blocks, is that 1914 was a crossover point. Not a stable, but an unstable point of balance, with Austria-Hungary and Germany on the downslide while their opponents moved up, 
But for the moment, for both, war now seemingly prospectively a rational option. This did not mean that hostilities were inevitable, but we also need to point in, factor in the second issue that I've raised as an explanation of why governments were so willing to run risks. We need to look at the way in which they managed or mismanaged the 1914 crisis. If Kennedy in 1962 looked back to 1914, what were the 1914 leaders' working models? Well, it's actually something that needs investigation. What I think is emerging from new research is the particular importance of the so-called winter crisis during the First Balkan War of 1912-13. to European leaders had a number of diplomatic confrontations to look back to, but 1912-13 was particularly important. It demonstrated to the Russian foreign minister that he could back up diplomacy by heightening, by heightening military preparedness. It showed the Austrians that military and diplomatic pressure on Serbia did not work. Pressure short of war was ineffective. It showed both the Austrians and Germans that the peacekeeping device of convening a great power conference <coughs> did not operate in their interests. And in 1914, they rejected that alternative. So these are the lessons that were being learned, but they were dangerous lessons. <coughs> well, we can move on towards 1962, but before we do that, a diversion to 1939, what I want to show here is a remarkably similar conjuncture. What the figure shows is military aircraft production, and it shows how German air expansion, again in uh, black, had surged ahead of Britain and France, the yellow and green, between 1933 and 1939, 1933 and 1938. But by 1939, the Western Allies were catching up. And this helps explain both why Hitler felt the time was running out and why the Western governments became more confident. And what we know about the military appraisals on the two sides bears out the statistical impression of another unstable equilibrium in which both sides were more willing to fight than they had been previously. One could also say a good deal, actually, about the attempts to learn lessons from history at this period, particularly on Hitler's side, but I just also want to say a couple of words about Neville Chamberlain, a couple of excellent points made in um, David Reynolds' book on summits about Munich. Couldn't resist these, actually. March 1938, um, when H.A.L. Fisher uh, presented a copy of his History of Europe to Chamberlain, Chamberlain was very grateful, um, but said at the present time, I'm too busy trying to make the history of Europe to be able to read about it. That's March 1938. Um, later on in the summer, Harold Templey once again sent a copy of his book on the foreign policy of Canning for Chamberlain to read. Um, and Chamberlain does seem to at least to have looked at it, and as Chamberlain put it, it fortified him in a belief that he already held that you should never menace unless you're in a position to carry out your threats. Now, that's Chamberlain learning then from uh, Templey in 1938. Whereas by 1939, when the British, of course, gave the guarantee to Poland, um, I have this insight, actually, from another of my doctoral students, Paul Horsler. Horsler uh, Paul, Paul's found in the press in 1939, full of references to the need to draw the line clearly so that a war should not happen again, as in had done in 1914, supposedly, because of miscalculation. Well, so having done this diversion through 1914 and 1939, we come to 1962. And what I want to suggest here is that the international pattern, if one looks at armaments expenditure, exhibits certain similarities, almost spookily, in fact. If you look at spending for strategic forces um, by the United States and Soviet Union, we actually see another crossover point here. 
Um, the Americans ahead in the 1950s, but the Soviets moving ahead in 19, between 1962 and 1964. If we look at nuclear delivery systems, on the other hand, hello, what's happened here? Um, these are figures for bombs and missile warheads. Um, what we see here is uh, an American advantage that was rapidly widening. So both sides could view this in different ways, as a glass half full or a glass half empty. Kennedy, we know particularly from Mark Trachtenberg's work, that he believed by 1962 that a showdown with Khrushchev was inevitable, and it was better to face it before the U.S. lost its remaining strategic invulnerability. On the other hand, Khrushchev placed his missiles in Cuba for many reasons, but partly as a quick fix to prevent the nuclear balance from shifting drastically against him. So if we follow Thucydides' observation that international history follows recurrent patterns, there are grounds for thinking that the situation in 1962 resembled those in 1939 and in 1914, and it's no accident that Barbara Tuckman's Guns of August was a bestseller even before the missile crisis. But of course, this time the pattern was broken. In part, the world was just lucky. I think the fundamental lesson, of course, in the Cuban Missile Crisis is just not to get into such confrontations. But in part also, it was due to Kennedy's handling of the crisis, and this did owe something to the President's and his advisers' use of multiple arguments from historical analogy. And I stress here, multiple. Because arguably, the most important lesson learned was not from 1914, but from the botched invasion of the Bay of Pigs in 1961 which underlined to Kennedy the importance of deliberation. Unfortunately, of course, between the 16th and 22nd of October, he and his colleagues on the Executive Committee of the National Security Council had the breathing space needed in order to move away from their initial preference from an airstrike against Cuba to the less provocative alternative of a naval blockade. During that week, two other historical analogies were cited in favour of restraint. One was 1956, the danger of a dual crisis on the model of Suez and Hungary. In other words, that American action against Cuba would cause Soviet retaliation against Berlin. And the other one, probably even more important, was of course the contention that an airstrike against the Soviet missiles in Cuba would be a Pearl Harbor in reverse. But what's essential to remember is that Kennedy also noted historical analogies that operated the other way, look in particular at his 22nd of October television broadcast where he said, and I quote, that the 1930s taught us a clear lesson. Aggressive conduct, if allowed to go unchecked and unchallenged, ultimately leads to war. Compare that with the quotation from his comments on Barbara Tuckman that I gave you earlier on about the danger of miscalculation. Now, Kennedy's father, of course, Joe Kennedy, had been notorious as a supporter of appeasement, and Kennedy's Harvard senior thesis, Where England Swept, was written during and after Munich, though interestingly, actually, it's a defence, in some ways, of Neville Chamberlain's conduct um, in the 1930s. Certainly, Kennedy was concerned to keep open communications to the Kremlin, but also during the crisis, he made very visible military preparations against Cuba and placed US forces at high readiness, more so, probably, than was comfortable to the British Prime Minister, Harold Macmillan, who had also read Barbara Tuckman, refused permission for Britain's Bomber Command to be alerted, and told General Morstad on the 22nd of October, and I quote, that mobilization had sometimes caused war. But as the crisis reached its climax, Kennedy and the XCOM stopped citing historical analogies and simply concentrated on assessing day-to-day -day developments, which is, I think, precisely what one would have expected and what they should have been doing. 
But the point here is that the American leadership drew arguments in favour of coercion as well as conciliation, and in the end it was the combination of the two that convinced Khrushchev he must back down, but I think the coercion more than the conciliation and the recently disclosed Malin notes on the Presidium meetings during the crisis confirm that, I think, from the Soviet background. When Khrushchev did decide to back down, the way he justified it to the Kremlin was by using a World War I analogy of his own, which was the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk in March 1918, where he said, pointed out how Lenin at that point had justified backing off in order to save socialism in the future. Temporary retreat, but that didn't mean abandoning the struggle. If Kennedy had taken just the Tuckman lesson in his conduct of the missile crisis, most likely the outcome would have been the Soviet missiles remaining in place and later on a still more dangerous confrontation over Berlin. So the president, the way in which he drew on analogies was complex and subtle. As one might expect from the man who in the televised 1960 presidential election debates with Richard Nixon said that his primary qualification to hold the presidency, this is Kennedy, his primary qualification was his sense of history. Now, I did encounter, of course, in the course of the research for this, a suggestion that that Harvard senior thesis on why England slept was ghostwritten. But these things may happen in Harvard. <laughs> Let me, as I move towards conclusion... This is juxtaposed this against Tony Blair's statement in a speech to the US Congress in July 2003 that there's never been a time when, except in the most general sense, a study of history provides so little instruction for our present day. Well, I think one understands why he said it. Um, and of course, actually, in the, the run-up to the Iraq invasion, he was frequently citing 1930s arguments, the appeasement argument and the danger of it. But in the aftermath of the Cold War and of 9-11, it did seem for a while as if the world had entered an unprecedented new era in which interstate and rivalry and conflict of the traditional kind had receded in significance. It's probably not an accident that the scope of the international history as a discipline broadened in the 1990s. Non-state relations, transnational history were brought into the fold, quite rightly. But a decade later, the picture perhaps looks rather different. More graphs. These are projections, of course, and projections, I stress, for US and uh, Chinese military spending, to which one might add the intended doubling of Russian, military, of Russian military expenditure proposed by President Putin over the next decade. There are disquieting similarities with previous transition points in the military balance. Now, of course, the curves may not continue in this fashion, and in fact, they're probably unlikely to. And historically, I do stress, arms races have neither invariably nor inevitably ended in hostilities. But military build-ups can still, I think, be a kind of fever chart that tell us more than do either public declarations or day-to-day -day diplomacy about underlying developments and trends. And changes in military capability may eventually change intentions. Intentions are like quicksilver. The more so... If, if, as in East Asia at present, there are signs beginning not only of a pattern of recurrent crises, but also of nationalist popular mobilization. The recent anti-Japanese demonstrations over the Sino-Japanese Islands crisis began, of course, on the anniversary of the 1931 Mukden incident, important day in China, the onset of the Japanese aggression about which Eileen Power was writing to Charles Webster all those years ago. 
I note here on Westdan's comment, on Westdan's comment in his new book, that history influences Chinese ways of seeing the world in a more direct sense than in any other culture I know. I think we all need to know more about the origins of that statement and what lies behind it. But while I was preparing this lecture, not only was The Economist citing the pre-1914 parallel, but Roger Cohen in the Herald Tribune was writing about miscalculation in 1914, Graham Allison in the Financial Times about what he called the Thucydidean trap in Sino-US relations, and Friedberg in the Foreign Affairs likened Americans' Chinese relations to the Anglo-German antagonism before 1914. In fact, once one's been sensitized to it, one sees references to the lessons of history everywhere. Commentaries by journalists and by public intellectuals are saturated with that phrase. Well, in this potentially ominous future, can the study of international history still be of guidance? Essentially, yes, of course, I believe it can, though with due modesty and caution about that claim. My starting point was that the founders of the discipline had eminently practical purposes. Curtis hoped to set international studies on a scientific footing. Stevenson to cleanse history of national bias and produce a discipline more independent and objective, critical if necessary, of the historian's own country as well as of others. I'm well aware that philosophically those ideals are problematic. But although Stevenson overestimated nationalism's importance in causing the First World War, he and, Kurt, he and Curtis put their fingers on something important when they highlighted historians' role in influencing public opinion. Even if political leaders do not read history books, the journalists they read may well do, as also may the politicians' staffers. And who is to say that the staffers advising future political leaders in international crises 10 or 20 years from now may not this evening be sitting in this room. Now, I say this, I suppose, to underline the traditional justification, which is that gaining historical knowledge is a repository of vicarious experience that can help us in diagnosing situations by recognizing patterns and shaping judgments. Often the best way of thinking through a problem, almost any problem, is to construct a timeline, investigate the viewpoints of the other parties, weigh the evidence, and identify the analogous situations that may or may not be relevant. All of these things are standard features of historical methodology. And uh, when I see references to lessons of history and the need to learn them, what I basically feel is that uh, there's actually an infinite number of lessons that can be learned from history. It's a huge storehouse of experience. But that does not mean you can learn whatever lesson you like. You have to apply some discipline to this. But if politicians and commentators are going to invoke historical analogies, whatever we do, those analogies should at least rest on as accurate a representation of the past as possible. None of this means that historical study enables us to predict, or that it can substitute for direct hands-on experience and detailed observation of day-to-day -day events. We should be measured about the difference that history can make. But it can bring understanding in a way that's applicable outside the classroom. Historians have no special claim to wisdom, but their contribution can be distinctive, and probably we all sense this intuitively and can recognize it from experience in our own lives. Though I think one thing that's become clear to me in researching this lecture is that this whole theme of learning from the past is both enormous and still under-examined. This shadow land, this kind of three-way interaction between political leaders, public discourse, and scholarly research is a huge and very rich and still underexploited field. By way of epilogue, I come back to Scotland. 
I turn to a passage cited by the Cambridge international historian Harry Hinsley that has stayed with me over the years. This is Scotland then, and the arrival at Monboddo House in August 1773 of James Boswell and Samuel Johnson, after a bleak journey over desolate moorland in driving rain. The house was tumble down. In Boswell's words, a wild and naked place. But still, Lord Monboddo, who was one of the pillars of the Scottish Enlightenment, proved a welcoming and convivial host. And as the conversation mellowed over dinner, it turned, of course, to history. Monboddo. The history of manners is the most valuable. I never set a high value on any other history. Johnson. Nor I, and therefore I esteem biography as giving us what comes near to ourselves, what we can turn to use. Boswell. But in the course of general history, we find manners. In wars, we see the disposition of people and their degrees of humanity. Johnson. Yes, but then you must take all the facts to get this, and it is but a little you get. Monboddo. And it is that little which makes history valuable. Thank you very much, David. A hugely uh, enjoyable and informative, enlightening lecture. I'll just start um, the ball rolling in questions with uh, taking you back to where you started. Mm. Um, I wonder whether in the course of looking at the emergence of international history as a discipline, you also thought about the emergence of international relations uh, as a discipline, which, you know, and the, 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 the different paths those two disciplines have taken. Yeah, can you hear me? Um, they, they, they emerged together, of course, um, um, at the LSE in the 1920s, and um, the project that William Beveridge was engaged on was uh, international studies, which he actually identified three elements to. He thought the international law and the international history and the international relations were mutually complementary. Um, what they tried to do was to set up a department of international studies. Interesting, what was missing from that was, was, was international economics. Um, but certainly from the starting point, there, there was... Um, it was seen as part of, part of a single approach and sort of mutually interconnecting and, and supportive. And uh, mm. as you saw, I think the distinction that he made was between what he called the analytical approach of Noel Baker and Manning. But if you read the work of those people, I mean, Noel Baker is essentially historical in his methodology when he writes about armaments and so on. Um, so, I mean, at, at this stage, it was pretty much a kind of grey area and a continuum between the two. And... Um, what, of course, one, one of the things that's very much missing at that period is the kind of uh, quantitative political science approach on the international relations side, um, which meant that the theoretical side and the historical side were much more mutually supportive. Um, the change came, but I think the change came well after 1945. Hmm. Okay, um, we'll take some questions. If people could wait till they actually get the microphone to ask the questions. So there's uh, one along there, and then after that there's a gentleman in the middle. So start there, please. Uh, firstly, Professor, thanks for um, a fascinating lecture. Um, I certainly agree with you that um, Stevenson seems like a you know, really kind of interesting character, but 
His, um, his internationalist ambitions um, and his hopes when he endowed the chair obviously uh, seem to be frustrated in, in 39. Mm. I know you say he, mm. he dies in 44. Yeah. Did you get any sense from you know, sort of the archives and the reading which you did about um, you know, how this affected him um, when, uh, you know, when World War II breaks out? Well, um, Winston Churchill was just divert for a minute. Winston Churchill has a passage in his History of English-Speaking Peoples where he's talking about King Offer of Mercia. Um, and he says Offer of Mercia is like a gigantic mollusk. In other words, he made a huge impact back in the, was it the 8th, 9th century, Mercia. But we know almost nothing about what occupied the, um, the creature um, because it's all gone. And I think Stevenson is sort of like this. The Stevenson papers have not not survived, but in all the other papers that I looked at, which included Toynbee um, and uh, Webster and the Chatham House archives, there are lots of correspondence from him, usually very short and pithy and sensible. Um, so you have this picture of this man who has this network, extraordinary network of international contacts. I only mentioned a few in 1933. and get an audience with President Hindenburg, also with Dolphus in Austria and so on. But we don't really know much about how he built up that network of contacts. And there are, there are a number of sort of guiding principles that, that run through the writing, the attachment to free trade and to internationalist education and so on. Um, well, what's most revealing, I suppose, are the obituaries, though, in answer to your question in 1944. Um, and what the obituaries say, there's, there's one, I think, from the Times, which says he died an extremely happy man. Um, and he did because he'd seen his academic projects come to some kind of fruition. They'd not prevented a new world war. But that's, and the League of Nations, which, of course, he was an ardent supporter of the League of Nations Union and other of them. Um, and that had come to nothing, really. But, but still, he felt... What he, what he said he felt most satisfaction about was the association with Chatham House and the annual survey and the academic endowments that he'd done. And on that front, at least, he felt he'd made a difference. Okay. That's a picture of him, of course, in his University of Glasgow robes. Yeah. Um, he became, uh, I think, Chance Provost, what, what is it called, with the Scottish universities? Lecture, yeah, thank you. The gentleman in the middle there, and then uh, Arno. Thank you very much, a brilliant lecture. Um, I've got one thing. The First World War. Now, in the history of Anglo-Saxons, that is, if I'm right, the largest loss of life that they've had in any conflicts since the Anglo-Saxon invasion. Now, out of it, a lot of change came, like um, might have been desirable, like Poland re-emerged as an independent state. It had been partitioned in the 18th century, as we may all know, Prussia, Russia, Austria, Finland gained independence, Czechoslovakia came into being, and the Turkish Empire, and we had Syria and Lebanon's mandate to France, Transjordan, the Palestine mandate of Israel, and um, Iraq. And I'm asking you, without these, first of all, none of these states would exist. Well, could you say anything about the ethical es- aspect of it? There might be some good coming from this, given that, as far as I know, there's a larger sloth in British history of life in military conflict the British have had. Um, well, you're quite right. It is, it is of course, by, by a long way the largest loss of life in British military history. It's about uh, um, a million dead in the Britain and uh, the Dominions, three-quarters of a million in the British Isles. Um, we're looking at about 300,000, 350,000 in the Second World War. Um, so military terms, yes, it's the only thing that rivals it, I think, total is the, is the Great Irish Famine back in the 1840s, which is often forgotten. Um, but, of course, it's not as if it achieved nothing. And you, you can't understand what went on if you start from the presumption, the sort of 1960s presumption that this whole thing was a senseless mistake. 
That's not how it was perceived at the time. It was perceived from the beginning as being fought for a worthy cause to punish aggression, show that German militarism couldn't be tolerated and so on. Um, the things that you've mentioned emerging at the end, the national self-determination aspect, those weren't necessarily things that the British government or the British public were fighting for. They were not high on the agenda for them. There was actually a discussion in the British cabinet in, 19, in the Foreign Office, I'm sorry, in 1917 about whether or not an independent Poland should be a British war aim in the sense of something that the British should pledge themselves to keep fighting for until they'd achieved it. And the decision was that it was not. It was not a vital British interest. But an independent Poland, an independent Czechoslovakia, to be, be sure, emerged as a byproduct of the uh, Allied success in World War I. Um, so if you put all those things together, I think that the, the important point, and why it's difficult, all of this, is it would be very easy to be, take a pacifist position if violence never achieved anything or only achieve things that were totally counterproductive. But unfortunately, that's not the case. Even with the First World War, in spite of the tremendous loss of life, um, it's not actually true from the British side that nothing was achieved. Yes. Um, Arno had a question. Yeah. Thanks, David. That was a fantastic lecture. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Sure everyone, everyone in the audience did. You mentioned the... Um, London School of yeah. Yeah. Diplomatic History, if you want to call it that, um, in the immediate period after the First World War, I mean, developing really out from the beginning of the century. Mm. With regard to the period that you covered in your lecture, on the chair that you know how it was set up, how would you compare that particular environment in terms of orientation to what was going on in continental Europe, I mean, particularly in Germany and, and France, in terms of overall direction to the study of diplomatic or international history? That's a good question. Um, the obvious comparison is, is with Pierre Renouvin, I think, in France. And um, the London School, one was looking here at, I suppose, Templey and Webster in particular, or Web Webster, the London School, but Templey is actually very, very similar in, in the approach that he follows. Both of them actually had their origins in Cambridge, King's College, Cambridge, and in some ways pre-1914 Cambridge is, is the origin of this. But London became the kind of focus of the movement after that from the 1920s. Um, the difference between, if you, if you read Webster, um, which can still be read with great profit today, and Renovan is that Renovan from very early on uh, had the viewpoint, yes, you needed the diplomatic history, but it wasn't enough to, do the the, to trace the history of the diplomatic transactions. And what, of course, later grew into the um, idea of the force profonde, profound forces underlying diplomacy, which, which he articulated more in the 1950s and 60s, is something that was already there. The idea of the work that he was doing in the 1930s already tries to place diplomacy in context. You have to look at the military background, the economic background, and ideological background. I think that, that was the fundamental difference between his approach and that of the, the so-called London School. Um, the more interesting, another interesting comparison, in the way, is between what was happening in this country and what was happening in the U.S. And um, if you read historians like Bernard Schmidt, who I mentioned, I mean, I think his work stands up extremely well. But it, it's very much focused on diplomatic history, like Albertini actually in Italy, um, and uh, like the way in which Webster and others wrote about it, and uh, the sort of contextual stuff which Ronovan did at the time. Um, his book on the La Crise Mondiale et la Grande Guerre, yeah, that was written in the 1930s in its first form. It was already very pioneering and pointed the way in which I think the, the discipline needed to move. Good. Yes, another question over here. 
Well, as you, mentioned, you mentioned what Blair mentioned in Munich, mm. well, I just, well, the, the thing I want to emphasise is that you know, in the run-up to the Iraq war, it seems if um, you know, Bush, Blair, Rumsfeld, all they could say was four words. So it's Munich, 1938, appeasement. The point is there's obsessive, um, obsessive things, like you know, on the day of the anti-Iraq war march, um, I think Blair made a speech where he said, oh, well, Neville Chamberlain was a good man. He meant well, but... So I just think you were well, commenting what um, the reverence was of your discipline, this kind of... Uh, mm. uh, and again, and then, and then it's important, and then now, now, of course, you've got Netanyahu, of course, he's used the Munich Paradise as well, but six years ago, he said it's 1938. Mm. Yeah, about, I mean, about Iran. Well, I mean, there are a lot of things I could say about that. Um, I mean, it's, it's obviously, yes, I mean, we know about Bush having Churchill's bust in his White House and uh, office and Obama getting rid of it. And at the, at the time, in the run-up to the Iraq war, I mean, I did support the recommendation of going to war against Iraq. Um, so it shows, if you like, that historical knowledge gives you no monopoly of wisdom. Um, but I did that in good measure, actually, because of the influence of the 1930s argument, um, though maybe I'd couch it a bit differently from, from focusing on Munich. I mean, what seems to me the real problem in the 1930s was not Munich, uh, but the failure to act against Hitler at a much earlier stage in 1933-34-35. That's, that's the crucial period when there was a missed opportunity. Um, the problem with all these analogies, and I think this is an underlying theme which I could have said more about, is are the, are the analogies themselves causative now, or are they justificatory? And it, it's, it's a bit of both, and it's very close... Scrutiny is needed, really, to see whether people are using the analogies because they really believe them or as a means of bamboozling, if you like, and mystifying opposition. Um, and I think with the, with the run-up to the Iraq war, there was obviously a good deal of very loose use of the 1930s analogies. That's part of the reason why I was going into the Cuban Missile Crisis in some depth. I mean, I was following here the, the Newstat and May analysis of it. That influenced me quite a lot, I think, in their, their book... Um, I've forgotten the title now. Yeah. The Kennedy tapes. Uh. No, not the Kennedy. Well, the Kennedy tapes, but 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 all, but also the other one, thinking in time. Yeah. Um, I think they they presented, a, a, I think, a quite a persuasive case. That was a good example of historical analogy being used correctly, not being allowed to dictate the thinking, but being in the early stages when they were kind of rummaging around, thinking, what on earth do we do? They were taking historical analogies to kind of open the range realm of possibility and to expand and aid the, the use of imagination to think of alternative solutions. And that's how it should be done. Um, but what I don't want to suggest, and I hope I made this clear at the end, we do, have, we do not have superior wisdom. We can't second-guess, I think, the um, actions of people who are seeing the day-to-day -day emails and intelligence reports coming in and who understand the kind of technical things which are absolutely really crucial in understanding whether it's necessary to act in these crises or not. No? Any others? No. There's one there. Gentle, gentleman there. Yes. My eyesight's not as good as it was. Thank you. Yeah. You touched on um, free trade before. Do you have any say a few words on trade wars, whether Chinese companies trying to buy companies in the US or whole supply chain and how countries might react to trade wars? So the, the question is about trade wars. Yeah, but can, can you just say exactly what the question is? Um, it's just how governments or politicians might react to what other companies are doing. 
other countries and how do we lead to poor conditions for citizens? Um, well, can, can, can historical analysis give, a, give us understanding into yeah, tr- trade wars today? Well, it, in, in, okay, I mean, I, I'll answer it in a slightly broader way. I mean, I didn't talk much about economic history tonight, um, but in, in many ways I think that that's a discipline where historical analysis and historical analogy can be actually extremely fruitful. Um, as, as a reading thing in the Financial Times yesterday, actually, by um, Martin Wolf, um, which looking at the analysis of the, the Obama recovery from the American recession and comparing this with other examples of recessions, um, both in the United States history but also in other developed countries now. And that was using quantitative methods, but historical methods in an extremely powerful way. And I was perhaps slightly dismissive about quantitative methods in a moment ago and what I said about international relations. Um, But if you're trying to construct historical models to try to solve problems in economic history, it's much more applicable to looking at questions of what solves economic growth, what causes financial crises. Um, A much wider range of methodology is needed, and um, I think it can lead to extremely important and convincing results. So, I mean, the short answer is it can can shed a lot of light, but I can't be more specific than that um, on the question of the sort of trade conflicts with China. Okay. Uh, One more here. Yes. Uh, it seems that there is a new tendency to study international history in terms of the transnational relations, yes. um, the structure of transnational networks, yeah. um, with the increasing publication of books focusing on low politics uh, rather than high politics, which you define, which you associate with the yeah. uh, London School of Diplomatic History. So, hmm. do you think London School of Diplomatic History is being marginalized by that new tendency, and how to revive it? Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, I hope Paul, Paul so, so I, I thank Paul Horsley for what he said about 1939. Nice to see you here, Paul. Um, yeah, okay. The, uh, that was the sort of political bit of the lecture, which um, I dealt with, dealt with in the middle, about the, the, when I was talking about the, the Toynbee strand as against the, the, the Webster and Templey strand. Um, and what I hope I was trying to say is that actually the two should be mutually supporting and um, that we, we can't understand international relations less and less, I think, than we used to by just focusing on just interstate relations. Obviously, there's a great deal happening at non-state level now um, and the world has become much more complex than it was in the 1920s. How do you revive it? Well, I suppose what I was trying to show, in a way, using the Cuban Missile Crisis one, was, was how actually there are certain questions that you still need, you can only answer by doing this very detailed, painstaking stuff where you look at day-to-day what was being said, what were people reading from the dispatches, what was being said by each power to the other through the variety of diplomatic channels and how that was being, how that, what sort of effect that was having. As if you're trying to assess whether Kennedy's measures, combination of, of conciliation and concessions, how that influenced Khrushchev, you can only do it, as it seems to me, by that very detailed analysis. If you're actually trying to find out what actually works in crises... You have to do it that way. And I think that, that was the insight that came from Templey. Yeah? I mean, te- Templey's memorandum, there are all sorts of problems with it, and it reads rather strangely when we look at it now, and it was rather caustic. But the fundamental point that he was getting at was that if you really want to write international history without national bias and to understand both sides' point of view and how they interact against each other, you do actually need the access to the confidential archives of both sides and to do a kind of trace 
how the interactions and the negotiations worked in any particular confrontation. So I'm not saying anything against transnational history or all the new varieties that have been added to the discipline which have greatly enriched it. What I am trying to say, this old approach, um, which some people, if you like, deride, um, and it's certainly tedious and difficult to read on occasion, um, but it actually has very considerable value. So, I mean, I would urge people not to lose sight of that, not to, not to lose the art of it by chasing off in different directions, which may be more attractive. Mm. Okay, I think we will uh, wind up there. But just before we do so, just to say there is an open reception on the eighth floor of this building, so all are welcome to come and attend afterwards and uh, have, a, have a drink, and uh, maybe if David's got any voice left to ask him uh, a question. Not much voice, but let's all thank him very much. Yeah.